Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you that you know your disciples and you know what they need. Jesus, I thank you for this timely word that you spoke to a group of of your followers who may have felt quite bewildered at this moment. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hide this word in our hearts for the times that we are bewildered by the same things. I pray that your word would accomplish something in our hearts today that goes well beyond these minutes together. Father, only you can do that, and so we ask you to make your word a swift and an effective word this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. What do you think is the most common command in the Bible? Be holy. Don't sin. Love God. Love your neighbor. Those are all important commands, but apparently if you count them up, now I haven't done it, so I'm going off of the work of someone else, but if you count them all up, the most commonly repeated command in the whole Bible is fear not, or don't be afraid, or do not fear. Some form of those words. Does that surprise you? Does that surprise you that fear not is the most common command in the Bible, at least as far as counting them goes. Fear is a common experience to us all. We all know what fear is like. We all know what fear is. As we think about fear, though, in this command to not fear, I think we also know that our, our fear doesn't always work very properly. We often fear certain things more than we should and there's other things that we don't fear the way that we actually should our fear is often like a smoke alarm that goes off when we're just cooking or making toast and yet it doesn't make a sound when our house is burning down it's not it's not calibrated properly our fear is so often not an accurate picture of reality And so time and time again, the Bible shows us God coming to recalibrate our fear. Think of him talking to Abraham in Genesis 15. After all these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I believe that's the first time in the Bible the command to not fear shows up. And it's it's interesting because... If we know the situation, which we're actually going to be looking at together in a few few months, God had made some incredible promises to Abraham. But none of them seemed to be happening on the timeline that Abraham expected they would. And if Abraham just looked at his circumstances, he'd have reason to be afraid. It looked like things weren't happening. And so God tells him to look at God, not his circumstances, and to fear not. God's presence and God's promises rewrites the story that fear tries to tell us. For another example, think about Jesus' 12 apostles. They've gone from just being told to follow Jesus 
to now being told that they're getting sent out to do exactly the same things that Jesus had been doing, and that as a result, they're going to be treated the same way that Jesus has been treated. And like we heard for much of last week, much of last week's passage was just Jesus telling them how hard it's going to be. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, like we saw. You put one wolf in a flock of sheep, it's going to cause a panic. How about a few sheep in a pack of wolves? Can you imagine the fear level? Think of what else Jesus told them. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. That was verse 17 to 18. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Verse 21, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Verse 22, these things will happen. And can you imagine, if you were just standing there hearing all of this, especially for the first time, you know, you'd never read Matthew before, it's going to be very easy for you to feel what? Afraid? Fear is going to be having a field day in your heart and in your mind. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows what his disciples need right now. And so in verses 26 to 33, he begins to reassure his disciples against fear. And what we have in these verses is three different commands not to fear. So have no fear of them. Do not fear. Fear not, therefore. Verses 26, 28, and 31. Three commands not to fear. And what's, what's so great about this passage is, is there's more than just three commands not to fear. He also tells them why not to fear. So there's three commands not to fear. There's three reasons not to fear. And then even beyond this, Jesus tells them what they should be doing instead of fearing. Some of us know by experience that there's certain things that if you just try not to do them, and that's all you try, just, okay, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. It, it's probably not going to work that well. You need something to do instead. And, and, and what Jesus does here is he shows them the path forward out of fear. But tell them why not to fear and what to do instead. And we're going to consider each of these three sets of reasons not to fear and alternatives to fear in turn. So let's, let's look at the first one. Verse 26, do not fear them for all will be revealed. Okay, is our first reason not to fear. Don't fear them. Why? All is going to be revealed. Verse 26, so have no fear of them for, here's the reason, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. One of the commentaries I read this week says that uh, this statement of Jesus tends to be among the things that are hidden. In other words, the first time we read this, it can be a little hard to understand what he's talking about. But the context here points us to the day of judgment, right? Jesus has spoken about the day of judgment up in verse 15. He's going to speak about it again down in verse 32. And, And so the context suggests that this time when the things that are hidden are going to be revealed, that that's going to happen on the day of judgment. And and, and another reason why we would want to think that way is because the the Bible has been telling us, the Bible tells us in in different places up until this point that the day of judgment is a day when the hidden things are going to be revealed. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, Ecclesiastes 12.14. 
And then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks about that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That's Romans 2, 15 to 16. Matthew 12, 36, just a few chapters from where we are, Jesus told how on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So taken together, these verses show us that there's a day when everything's going to come out. Every dirty backroom deal, every slanderous lie told behind someone's back, every slimy politician's act of cowardice, every hateful decision that caused pain to the people of God, it's all going to come out into the open and be dealt with by God on the day of judgment. It can be so hard to watch wicked people persecute the righteous and get away with it. And we can feel so powerless before big governments and big people. It can look as if God's enemies have the upper hand. But Jesus is telling us that that's just an illusion. They don't actually have the upper hand. The day is coming when all of these dirty secrets that cause so much harm to the people of God are going to be brought to the light and the people of God are going to be vindicated. Now what's interesting is, is sometimes we don't have to wait for Judgment Day for this to happen. Think of the, think of the, 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 the crooked way that, that the leaders acted when they had Jesus killed. Well, that's all out in the open now, right? No one thinks Caiaphas was a great guy that's come out into the open. Think about the stories of Paul's trials and acts and how all of that came to the light. Think about how, if you've ever read a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs, how the truth behind the unjust persecution of the people of God has come out into the light time and time again. There's an old phrase, and I don't know who first said it, that time and truth march hand in hand. Things have a way of coming out into the open the more that time passes. But, but here's the thing. Even if, they do, even if that doesn't happen in this life, on Judgment Day, all the secrets are going to come out. So for the time being, wicked people might be able to control the narrative and seem like they have power, but that's, that's a bubble that's going to pop. And so we don't actually have to be afraid. So Jesus' disciples are to have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So instead of fear, Jesus' disciples, what are they supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to speak the truth openly. Verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Don't be shy, boldly pro- proclaiming the truth. In the light of judgment day, keep on speaking the truth openly. Don't give in to fear. Keep on speaking the gospel. And so that's our first reason not to fear. Don't fear, because it's all going to come out. And what should we do instead? Keep speaking the gospel truth openly. Second reason not to fear. Do not fear them, for they cannot touch your eternity. Verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. All the persecution that Jesus has talked about in, in chapter 10 up until now, being flogged, being dragged before governors, and even up to death. What's, what's the worst that any of that can result in? Dying. That's it. J- just dying. Just death. That's the worst these people can do. 
Show me your worst, as you know, is a phrase that we might use. What's the worst they can do? They can kill you, and that's it. What they can't touch is your soul. These people have no ability, no power, no capacity to hurt the part of you that is going to keep going on forever after they've killed your body. Just think about that. The real you is going to live on long after your body's been destroyed. And that part of you, the real you that's going to live on, is untouchable by persecution or by disease or by injury or by disability. And so these people, they can't touch your eternity. Death is not final. Think of all those martyrs throughout history who were killed by the sword or thrown to the lions or burned at stakes. None of their lives truly ended in those moments. We got we we to think of this, people. We got to remember this. That rather, in a sense, their lives were, were, by comparison to eternity, just beginning in those moments. As the edge of a soldier's sword or the sharp point of a lion's teeth or the searing edge of a flame ended their physical life and their heart stopped beating and their lungs stopped breathing and their brain stopped waving and their physical body was destroyed, that was simply the moment that the seed was pushed into the ground and covered up with dirt. Their souls went immediately to be with the Lord in his presence And one day, in a day that gets sooner and sooner every day, those souls are going to be reunited with a resurrected body and their eternal life is going to keep going on forever and ever and ever. So what did death take from them? Just a few extra decades before it was going to happen anyways? In terms of the real importance, what was taken from them? What changed that day that their bodies were killed? Nothing. Nothing of real importance. So we should not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill our souls. I just want to give an encouragement here. If you haven't read a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs or or the book uh, Jesus Freaks that we have in our library that's written more for a youth audience, stories of people dying for their faith are profoundly encouraging. And they also really are profoundly rebuking for all the ways that we complain about little inconveniences in our lives today. So be encouraged. Okay, This isn't in my notes, but go read some stories of people who died for Jesus. It'll, it'll do you really well. What, is, what should we do instead of fearing those who can kill the body? Well, we're to fear the Lord. That's the second half of verse 28. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, I wonder if some people would read this about someone destroying soul and body in hell and think this is talking about Satan. But the problem is nowhere in the Bible do we see that Satan has power to destroy people in hell. Nowhere in the Bible do we see that we should be afraid of Satan. It's just not there. We're not supposed to be afraid of him. We're supposed to be, be wary of him, but not afraid. However, many times in the Bible, we do see that God has authority over body and soul and death and hell. Many times in the Bible, we're told that we must fear him. Now, isn't this interesting? We're in a passage about not fearing, and yet we're being told to fear. 
We just did a series in Proverbs this summer, and we heard this truth over and over again in the book of Proverbs, right? Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. To know God is to fear Him, and that's where wisdom begins. And we saw in Proverbs that this same tension between fearing and not fearing runs through the whole Bible. Okay, so this isn't the only place where it's like, well, am I supposed to fear or not? Think of Mount Sinai, where Moses said to the people, Exodus 20, 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. I think that verse is so helpful in helping us understand. See, God came to Mount Sinai and it was fire and loud noises and the people wanted to run away. And Moses said, no, don't, don't run away. God's just here to test you that you might fear him so that you don't sin. And that verse helps us understand that, as, we, as I tried to explain in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is a fear that does not make us run away from God, but rather it's a fear that keeps us from running away from God. And, and, and we, need to, we need to take both of those together and wrestle with the tension. Some people try to resolve this tension by just explaining it away. Oh, fear just means like, it just means respect. Well, no, it doesn't. Um, a book I read recently argued that the fear of the Lord is simply talking about a really strong joy that's just such a strong joy that it makes us tremble. I mean, that's wonderful, and, and that, that type of, of joy in God that's so strong it makes you tremble, that's a good thing. But, but you can't say that that's what the fear of the Lord is, because otherwise our verse today, Matthew ten twenty eight, makes no sense. Think of what this verse is saying. Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can destroy the body and soul. The whole logic of the verse assumes that the word fear means the same thing in both halves. Jesus doesn't change the meaning of the word fear halfway through to talk about a really strong joy because all, all of a sudden the verse makes no sense. We need to take the Bible at face value. We must fear the Lord, not because he's a bad guy out to get us, but rather, he wants us to fear him, and that fear keeps us from running away from him in sin. A healthy fear of God's judgment keeps us close to him because we are afraid of what he will do to us if we leave him. That type of description gets us, I think, closer to understanding the fear of the Lord in the Bible. Here in Matthew ten twenty nine, Matthew uh, here in Matthew ten, we see that the fear of the Lord keeps us from fearing man. Let's break down how this how this actually works here in, in in today's verse. How does this actually work? How does the fear of the Lord keep us from fearing men? Matthew ten twenty eight. Jesus' disciples have been entrusted with the gospel. They're being sent out to proclaim the gospel 
to proclaim the kingdom, to spread the kingdom. And as they do that, they're going to meet people who want them to stop, who want them to stop proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand, who stop proclaiming forgiveness in Jesus' name. And as they do that, those people are going to be willing even to kill them to make them stop. And at that point, Jesus' disciples have a choice. If they choose to be afraid of those people and their powerful governments and their sharp swords, if they're afraid of dying, then they're going to stop preaching Jesus. If they're afraid of men, they're going to stop preaching Jesus. They're going to cave in and turn their back on Jesus' kingdom entirely. And if they do that, they're going to have to stand before God someday and give an answer for that. They're going to have to answer to God for why they abandoned their mission, for why they committed treason against Jesus. And they're going to have to face the judgment of God, the God who can kill and destroy both soul and body in hell where they'll be lost and destroyed forever in that place of eternal judgment. And Jesus is telling them to think about that. What should you be more afraid of? Not just be, think about that, fear that. Not just fear that, fear him who can do that. Because if you fear the Lord who can destroy both soul and body in hell, then when those people tell you to stop preaching Jesus, you're going to say, no way. What's the worst you can do to me? I'm, I'm more afraid of what God will do to me if I stop than what you're going to do to me if I keep going. Okay. That's, that's how the logic here works. Fear man and face the judgment of God or fear God and all of a sudden men don't seem quite so scary anymore. And that's why various authors have summed up the teaching of this passage by saying things like, those who fear the Lord have nothing more to fear. The fear of God displaces all other fears. So, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We come now to our third reason not to fear. This one begins with a bit of a preamble. Some of the Alternative and the rationale starts before we get to the command not to fear. In verses 29 to 30, which are a part of this preamble, they talk about the sovereign care that God has for his creation. Here's how it begins. Verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Sparrows being sold might seem like a problem to us, especially if you're a a farmer who's sat with a pellet gun and shot them out of your barn before. But in this part of the world at this time, sparrows are actually sold in the market as cheap poultry. So literally, if you were too poor to avoid anything else, you could pick up two sparrows for a penny, which was the smallest unit of money. Couldn't break it down any further. And you could bring home a couple of sparrows, which you would pluck and clean and cook and get maybe a chicken wing's worth of meat off of it. And that that was poor man's poultry. All kinds of uh, dad jokes about Kentucky Fried Sparrow come to mind, but we'll, we'll leave those for the time being. Here's the thing. The emphasis here is just that sparrows are cheap, two for a penny. And yet, and yet... 
Verse 29, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. This verse here reminds us of God's sovereign rule over his creation and that God's sovereign rule extends all the way to the most insignificant creature. Some people have taken this verse and they've emphasized that God sees what happens here. So some of you might remember that that old children's song and don't be offended that I said it was old, but uh, you know the song, God sees the little sparrow fall, it meets his tender view. If God so loves the little birds, I know he loves me too. And, 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 and so we sort of emphasize that God sees the sparrow fall. Okay? That's not actually what this verse is emphasizing. What this verse is emphasizing is that those birds don't fall to the ground apart from your father. This is what it says. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. It doesn't say your father seeing it. It says apart from your father. Full stop. In other words... That doesn't happen apart from God. In other words, God is in charge and in control of that event. God is in charge and in control of what happens when a sparrow dies and falls out of a tree. It's a part of his sovereign will and care of all creation. We looked at this a couple of years ago when we looked at Matthew 6.26, which says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. And we said, well, uh, I thought the birds kind of fed themselves. You know, they kind of fly around looking for food. But here's the the way that the Bible pictures, the way that Jesus pictures God's care of creation. When a bird finds food to eat, that is God feeding it. Because God is sovereign in control of every little detail of life that's happening on planet Earth. You can read Psalm 104, for example. It's in your study guide to read through Psalm 104, verses 1 to 30. Make a list of every natural process in Psalm 104, like the rain falling and the lions going out to find food. And and how many of those natural processes does Psalm 104 attribute to God? God is doing this. God is doing this. See, we we just are used to talking about nature in this sort of like uh, impersonal way. Well, it's going to rain today. Instead of, God is going to make it rain today. Oh, that animal couldn't find food. God took food away from that animal. Okay? This, is the way that, this is the way the Bible trains us to think. God is sovereign over every last little detail of life that happens on planet Earth, including a sparrow falling to the ground. That doesn't happen apart from God. This world is not just a ball that God kicked and it just is rolling by itself. This world continues to work second by second because God is ruling over every last detail. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And God's sovereign care and will extends to a little bird worth half a penny falling out of a tree. It even goes to smaller things than that, Matthew 10.30. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. God's sovereignty extends to his knowledge of the number of follicles on your scalp. So if God rules over creation at that level, if God rules over creation at that level, do you think we can trust him? Verse 31. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. 
Isn't that, isn't that just such a comfort, especially after verse 28 encouraged us to fear the Lord? Do you see how the fear of the Lord and the comfort in his love and his care for us, they, they, they go together. If you can't take one and, and, like, if you just are afraid of God punishing you and that's it, that, that's not what it, what it looks like to know God. If you don't fear the Lord in any sense at all, that neither is that what it means to fear God. But the fearing of the Lord and a, and a, and a healthy fear of judgment combined with the knowledge that he's our father, right? Think of verse 29, not one falls to the ground apart from your father. And here, verse 30, fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. The father places value on us. We're not just mammals. We're not just animals. We're worth more than animals. We find our value because we're made in his image. And if we're among his redeemed people, then Jesus paid the price of blood for us. And we find our value in the cross. And so we should take, we should take comfort in this. As Jesus' disciples, so here's, here's, let's put this together. As Jesus' disciples go out to preach the gospel, they're not going out into a big, wide world where anything could happen and it's really scary. They're going out into a world where every last detail is under the sovereign control of their father. Nothing is going to happen to them outside of his plan. Nothing. Nothing is going to happen to them that God is not in control of. Nothing is going to happen to them that is not a part of the Lord's sovereign plan. They are valued by God. And no one's going to touch them unless it's a part of God's plan. So we don't need to be afraid. We don't. Instead, what are we to do? Now, the answer here isn't spelled out, the alternative, but I think it's pretty clear from verses 29 and 30 that we're to trust God's sovereign plan. If, if sparrows and hair is a part of his plan, well, what happens to us is a part of his plan too. We can trust him instead of fearing. Now, please hear this. This is not a guarantee that nothing scary is, is never going to happen. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father. Sparrows still do fall to the ground. God's sovereign plan for our lives often includes difficulty. Just like it did for Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So so hear this. Jesus is not saying that they're not going to be beaten and not going to be persecuted and not going to be hauled before governors and, and maybe not even be killed. Because he's told them already that is going to happen. That's what he said. But the comfort here is that if those things happen, they are happening as a part of the sovereign plan of God. So the comfort here is knowing that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The comfort is knowing that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The comfort is knowing that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The comfort is knowing, in the words of 1 Peter 5.10, that after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's not that nothing bad's going to happen. It's that that's just 
just a little blip. And it's so all going to disappear into an ocean of endless kindness. So we can face suffering with confident trust because we're, we're not looking for our best life now. We can live with hardship because we're looking for a best life later when the kingdom comes. And that's really been the whole theme of this passage, right? All three of these reasons have oriented us beyond our circumstances to live in light of eternity. The first reason orients us towards Judgment Day, where all the secrets are going to come out. The second reason helps us to see that the worst can happen to us, can't touch our souls. That's what's valuable. And this last reason points us in the same direction as we understand that dying doesn't mean the end of God's wise and loving plan for our lives. So, there's three commands not to fear. And we're going to come back to what I was just saying. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But we see here three commands not to fear, three reasons not to fear, and three alternatives to fear. And when we take them together, we see that they're giving us the same basic choice that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. You can live for your best life now and miss out on eternity. Or you can live for eternity and you'll be willing to endure some hardship now as a result, knowing that you're not actually missing out on anything truly important. So it's no surprise that, that Jesus sums up this whole section in verses 32 to 33 by orienting us to eternity, by helping us see that we should be living not for what people say about us here on earth, but what Jesus is going to say about us in heaven. Verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Faithfulness to Jesus in this life is always going to include acknowledging him publicly as our Lord. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. And that public faithfulness to Jesus is going to be worth it, even if it causes pain here on earth, because it means that Jesus acknowledges us before his Father. Have you ever, have you ever had one of those moments, like some of you here, you might know someone important or famous, and you've been in a situation, and that person says, hey, it's you, and shakes your hand, and you just feel like, wow. Like, Think of how much greater it will be to appear before the Lord and have the, this, the Son of God look at you and say to the Father, they're with me. They're mine. Let them in. And isn't that going to be worth worth it? Isn't that going to be worth people here on earth saying terrible things about us and treating us poorly? To be welcomed into the presence of the Father with the Son of God saying, they're mine. How much more awful will it be if we cave into fear and deny Jesus repeatedly over and over again here on earth? I mean, Peter did it three times, but he was restored. This is talking about a, a lifestyle decision of perpetually, continually denying Jesus. And to show up in heaven expecting, to show up before the Lord expecting a welcome and to be told, I never knew you. You don't belong here. What would you rather have? There's not a whole lot more to say about this passage. The choice is there before us. I want to just make sure we don't miss some very important truths that this passage as a whole is shouting to us. First, first, let's not miss eternity, heaven. This is not just a nice extra. 
Rather, we are to make our choices about how we live on earth with the main calculus, the main, the main factor being what's going to happen in eternity. Okay, so it's, some, some of us have heard the gospel being preached here in North America a certain way that says, oh, you're sad and you're lonely. Jesus will fix up your life and, and make everything awesome here on earth. Oh, and by the way, you also get to go to heaven when you die. Okay, whereas what we're seeing here is actually choosing to follow Jesus might actually make you sad and lonely. I mean, not truly. Hear what I'm saying. It might mean, make you be persecuted and show up in a, and, and, and land in a dungeon and a jail where you might be by yourself for, for years. Following Jesus might mean that. Plus, eternity with joy in the presence of the Lord. So see how heaven is not this nice extra. Eternity with Jesus is the reality that, that makes all of this stuff here on earth make sense. We have to think that way. This is not about our best life now. This is about our best life later in the presence of the Lord. Following Jesus might make our lives much more difficult than they would be otherwise. And don't take that comment I made about being sad and lonely. Don't take that too far. Of course we have the joy of the Lord. Of course we have the fellowship of his people. Later on we're going to hear Jesus say, no one who gave up fathers and mothers and houses and lands will not be repaid a hundredfold in this life. In the fellowship of the church we get so much joy. But hear this. The main thing we're living for is what comes after we die. Secondly, as we conclude this passage here, let's just not miss, these are not just nice ideas. I remember hearing about a pastor in Berlin during, uh, one of the faithful pastors during the last months of the war as Berlin was being bombed incessantly. And he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that every time he got into his pulpit to preach to his group of people that some of them were not going to come back the next week. And I knew as I was preparing this morning to preach on this passage about fear and persecution that I'm preaching to a group of people that if you stay faithful to Jesus, these next years are going to be difficult. Some of you, if you stay faithful to Jesus, might lose your jobs. Some of you, if you stay faithful to Jesus, might lose your families. These are not just ideas. This is real stuff, folks. We're living in 2022. This is real stuff. And can I get up in front of you and say with honesty, don't be afraid? Well, yeah, I can because Jesus said it to his disciples. But this is real stuff, people. It's not hard to see how not only our government but even public opinion is turning against the people of God. Have you noticed, have you kept track of how many hit pieces CBC's putting out against Christians it's not news, it's propaganda, and it's just, it's all the time. They're, they're, they're digging up, they're deliberately digging up dirt on Christians to try to sway public opinion against the people of God. And I'm not a, getting into conspiracy theory, that's just, that's just what's there on the surface of it. Public opinion in this nation is going to turn more and more against the people of God. It is going to get harder and harder. Are you in? Are you in? Are you a follower of Jesus? And will you choose to fear him instead of people? These are not just ideas. The decision to fear man or fear God is going to be one of the most practical decisions that any one of us can make. Are we in? Are we ready? 
Will you choose between your safety and loyalty to Jesus? Will you choose between having friends or having faith? Here's a sobering thought as we conclude. How many of those decisions are actually before us today? How many times do we zip it up about Jesus because we don't want to make things awkward with our neighbors? How many times do we give in to fear in all kinds of small little ways today because we want our coworkers to like us? Is it going to change when the stakes are raised and it gets even harder? Now is the day. Now is the day. In your classrooms, in your workplaces, with your friends, with your family, now is the day to choose to acknowledge Jesus before others. Now is the day to reject fear, to look to eternity, and to trust in the sovereign care of God. Now is the day to choose faithfulness to Jesus over fear of people. What will it look like for you? What's before you even this week? You know that. The Lord knows that. What will it look like for you to respond to the voice of Jesus? Have no fear of them. Do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear not, therefore. Would you ask the Lord to help you trust his promises, believe his words, and set you free from fear? Let's pray. Jesus, you've told us not to be afraid of people. And so right now I'm just asking you to help us obey that. Please help us obey what you've commanded us here, oh Lord Jesus. Help us to believe these reasons that you've given us. Help us, Lord, to believe that what's coming in eternity is better than anything that we can lose here on earth. Help us to believe that everything's going to come out into the open. Help us to believe that you are sovereign over every detail of our lives. Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, I'm praying that you would take these things and help them be more than just ideas. Use these words to prepare us to suffer for the sake of your name without fear. Jesus, help us to look forward to the day when in your presence all these things are a memory and joy in you is all that we will ever know. Make us faithful, O Lord.